We're in a series on pressing on in spite of things. Uh, sometimes the weather interferes with different plans, right, uh, Clive? Uh, things sort of come and uh, obstacles that we face and things. But we're talking about pressing on, and, and we've already focused on Philippians chapter 3, all the month of January, on uh, pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But when you, when you try to go forward for God, it's easy to go with the flow. It's easier to go with the world. But when you go, you try to do right, you try to live like Jesus has lived, lived it's hard. And um, there are times when you feel like all you do is you knock stuff down. <laughs> you fail. And I want to give you some gospel truths about failure. And I want you, I think... Well, I'll hold off. I need you to go to Micah. Just go ahead and go to Micah, chapter 7. Micah's a small book, just before Matthew. Micah, chapter 7. If you find Malachi, keep going left from Matthew. Keep going until you find the little book of Micah, chapter 7 and verse 8. You can remain seated. I'm just going to read this. Micah 7, 8, since it's just one scripture. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I, what's the next word? All right, now that's very important. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Somehow, Micah's got some encouragement. He says, you know, my enemy's waiting for me to mess up, fail. Who's our enemy? The devil. And he just watches and waits for us to fall into a trap, to, be, uh, uh, to believe lies, to get distracted, to fall and fail in our Christian life. But Christians have the opportunity to do the impossible even though we fail. You know what the impossible thing that Christians can do almost every day? And that is you can press on even though we fail. And the truth is, everyone fails in life. Walt Disney, his first cartoon production company, went bankrupt. Sylvester Stallone was thrown out of 14 schools in 11 years. When he went to the University of Miami and he tried to go into acting, they says, you can't act. That was Sylvester Stallone. Elvis Presley's music teacher in secondary school gave him a C grade and told him he couldn't sing. How many of you know what a Dr. Seuss book is? You know, you know, Green Eggs and Ham? You know, Sam I Am? All right. Dr. Seuss's first book was rejected by 27 publishers. And his first book, uh, All the Things I Can See on Mulberry Street, he almost was so discouraged that he almost burned the manuscript, but then he got a letter from the company that then took over the publishing of his books. And that one book has sold over 6 million copies out of all. He sold like 900 million copies of all of his books. They, 11,000 copies of some Dr. Seuss book is bought every day. And he almost quit because he was rejected. Thomas Edison, he was fired from one of his first jobs working in a telegraph office because one of his experiments exploded. Later, when he got his own shop and he was trying to develop the light bulb, he went through 2,000 different experiments before he could get it to work and stay working. 2,000. Albert Einstein didn't start speaking until he was nine years old. During, his, during in its first year as a company, Coca-Cola only sold 400 bottles of Coke in one year. Doesn't sound like a very promising career. During the first years in the automobile business, Henry Ford went bankrupt in three years, twice. Winston Churchill stuttered as a child, and yet he later became one of the world's most respected public speakers. Ludwig von Beethoven, he was deaf when he wrote most of his best music. And everybody said, you can't do that. Deaf people can't make music. And this is kind of cute. In his first 20 years of business, a guy named Tom Moynihan, went broke twice. He lost control of his pizza company. He was sued for tra trademark violations. Later on, the pizza company re restarted and it became known as Domino's Pizza. 
I'm telling you, everyone fails in life. All right? Yet failure has a way of darkening Christians, and I don't like that. You're a light in this world. And on your job, in your school, in your home, wherever there are unsafe people, you're supposed to be bright. You're supposed to let your light so shine. But we let our failure darken us. We let our failure depress us. Amen. Do you know, failure is the cause of most depression in Christianity. You've got to think about it. That's terrifying because that should not be. It hardens Christians. I find the longer we go in this age, Christians get harder and harder, and I put my finger on it because they're failures. And their failure at trying to live the Christian life, their failure at it just makes them angrier and harder instead of understanding it. Because if you're not careful about how you handle failure as a Christian, it'll ruin you. It'll make you a worthless type of life. And it's just not right. You know, it's an oxymoron for a, to have a defeated Christian. That's an oxymoron. It's like a defeated Savior, a defeated God, a defeated salvation. I am no longer my... Uh, for me to live is Christ, no matter what I go through. I am a Christian. I'm not Craig Ledbetter anymore. I'm trying to be like Jesus. And if I live a failed life, I'm a contradiction in terms because Christ saved me. Not to be a failure. Now, some people go too far and say, well, you're, you're saved to be a success. Maybe not. Look at the Apostle Paul. He wasn't much of a success. He was naked, hungry, thirsty, adrift. He was in prison. He was not a success in this world. But he was happy. You don't find him depressed. You don't find him dark. There are too many failed Christian lives who quit getting back up. What do you mean by getting back up? It's like a boxing ring. I mean, anybody who ever gets into a boxing ring, I should have uh, um, uh, Scott get up here in his paraphernalia and uh, come up here and, and, and show what it's like in a real boxing ring. Not with me, because I might hurt you. But uh, uh, in a real boxing ring, you get into the ring and you're going to get hit. Amen? And what do you do when you get hit? You get back up. Yet according to the... It, According to modern figures, this is what Christianity looks like. A field full of people that are dead. Church dying. People don't sing. They don't have joy. They don't have a... They, they come to church. They sort of get that salve put on their conscience, and they go home the same dead way. Amen. That's not right. The Bible says... The Bible says... That we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And the truth is, the truth is, we have a secret ability to be able to get back up and keep going. Did you know what most, you know, I was doing some research, what most people worry about. You ready? All right. If you're under 25 and you're a lady, this is what you most worry about. A spot or a blemish on your face. Yet I don't care how old you are, you always worry about whether you have, you, you, you have and keep friends and whether you're popular. Most people worry about their sports abilities. But none of those things matter. And we all know it. You know, if you, ever, if you ever meet somebody who's at their prime and they're in some sports team, they're playing for Manchester United, they're, they're playing for uh, uh, some great team, they have a period of time, about 10 years, and then they're over. And the pressure on them is unbearable. And there's 300,000 other people who wish they could be just like them, and they'll never make it into the pros. And they worry, and they wish, and they, they, they spend their lives focusing on trying to do something that almost nobody in the world will ever be able to do and stay good at for very long. We know that those things don't matter, friends and looks and sports. But there are seven big areas that we all fail at. Are you ready? Marriage. Let me ask you, who has the perfect marriage? Come on, put your hand up. Okay. I'm glad you want to tell the truth. Amen. If you are married for very long, 
you will feel like a failure in your marriage, if you're honest. Or your spouse may remind you you're a failure in your marriage, right? <laughs> or your spouse may up and leave you for someone else. And you will, for the rest of your life, feel like a failure. It's real, folks. Areas that we fail in, how about raising our children? We all fail here. Christian parents are not immune from raising little devils. When we try to teach our kids right, ladies and gentlemen, we are raising sinful children who, are on, who will go their own way, and we will pray and work and fail, and we will beat ourselves up for the rest of our lives. We'll feel like failures. How about your career? How many of you set out on a career path and you said, I, I never want to change? I bet you came, I bet you spent a fortune going to school only to be very discouraged and frustrated and disappointed with your career. <laughs> never making the money you thought you would, hating your job, feel like a failure in your career. How about your worship? Feel like failures are on other Christians? You know what I worry about? I worry about Christians, and I do. I pray for, I, I got everybody on the list. I pray for all of you guys by name. And I'm glad I do because I forget your name. I mean, I sit there, good night. There's too many names to process. But I worry, and I say, so-and-so hadn't been here in a while. I wonder if they're going through a hard time. They just don't want to be around Christians. That bothers me because they feel like a failure around Christians. Don't feel that way, because we is one. We are nothing but failures, folks, in our worship and our relationship with God. I mean, how many of you don't raise your hand would say you don't pray like you should? How many of you would say you don't even know how to pray? How many haven't read any of your Bible in weeks? Failure. Feel like a failure trying to sing in church. <laughs> Didn't know we had Tarzan here today. So you wake up in the morning, you feel like God is glaring at you. I don't want to go to church. I just make people upset. How about your friendships? You let people down. You find as you go on in a Christian life, you find fewer and fewer real friends. How about your finances? Don't know how to manage your money. You get into debt all the time. You never have the money to do anything that you want because it's all just taken from you every week. And having no purpose in life, which is the worst? Failure. You can have every other failure, but if you have no God-given purpose in your life, you'll want to die. Too many people who just go on the merry-go-round of work, eat, sleep, pay bills. Work, eat, sleep, pay bills. Work, eat, sleep, pay bills. They've never won a soul to faith in Christ. They never read their Bible all the way through. They never have done anything hard for God just out of love and appreciation for His faithfulness. I feel like a failure. Now, there are reasons why all of that happens in our life. I'm going to shave that for another day. But let me encourage you and say, not everything is a failure. You know, doing God's will, if you ever decide to, to ask God, what will they have me to do? And then find out what it is, big thing, little thing, whatever it is on a day and then on a life basis. What is it that, you, that God wants you to do? People look at you and go, well, that's stupid. Well, you sure failed. Do you know waiting for the right person to marry will make you look like a failure to all those people who got a girlfriend at age 14? Amen. When you, if anybody in this room ever quit their job and decided to pastor a church, you'll be looked at by your coworkers as a failure. Well, I guess he couldn't make any money. <laughs> Homeschooling will constantly be judged as a failure. Not everything's a failure. When you do God's will, the world look at you and go, what a strange person. You go, I'm right where I should be. Now, I want to focus on one person who failed in a huge ways, and yet he didn't stay a failure. This morning, we're going to look at a guy named David. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we start... To look at this one life, I pray that we'd look at ourselves, not look at anybody else, because we are so prone with a microscope to be able to point out the failure 
of someone else. We're so ready to see the flaws in someone else. We can remember people who failed us like it was just yesterday. And yet we never look at our own selves. So this morning I pray we would not look at David, but like a mirror we'd go, that's me. Learn from him how to get back up when the devil wants us down. Because Jesus, you saved us to turn this world upside down. You saved us to be a city on a hill. You saved us to make a difference. You saved us for life abundant. And there's plenty of people who are missing that. It's not because of failure. It's because we don't know how to handle it. So help us this morning, God, even though we fall, to remember we shall not be utterly cast down because you are upholding us. Lord, this morning, everybody know the gospel truth is we're all sinners. We're all a mess. We're all going to fail. We're never going to be perfect, and we need a Savior. Thank you for Jesus who loved sinners and wants to save somebody today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, King David. You have to admit, he's one of the most highly revered and important characters in the Bible. He triumphed over a lion, a bear, and a giant. He didn't do it because he was super strong or super smart. He did it because he had a great and a confident faith in a great God, the God of Abraham. So God used David to lead Israel through very difficult times and blessed David with victory after victory against all his enemies. So he's one of the most revered and important characters in the Bible. But even though he was a godly man, David had a history of falling short of what God saved him to be. In fact, David broke half of the Ten Commandments in just one short incident with Bathsheba. The Bible says, thou shalt not covet. Well, guess what David did? He coveted another man's wife. You know, the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery, and yet he committed adultery with Bathsheba, took another man's wife and lay with her. The Bible says, thou shalt not steal, and yet he stole another man's wife, inviting her alone over to his home and into his bedroom. He lied about it. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And then he murdered a man, her husband, to cover it up. Five of the Ten Commandments broken by David over in one incident. On David's report card, he got a big F. He failed. And you know what? Beyond all that, the Bible records as many as a dozen times. Let me just keep going. David fell from doing what God said to do. thought I had that. Yep. Nope. He failed when he forgot how to bring the ark into Jerusalem. He got so excited, he forgot to read the manual, the Bible, on how to bring the ark in. And it cost a man's life. Failure was a died because David was too impatient and too, too wrapped up in, in, in just, just having fun in bringing the ark down to Jerusalem. And he forgot, God said, carry it, not put it on a fancy cart. He failed in his first, mess, in his first marriage with Michal. He walked away from her one day in anger and never came back. He failed in that marriage. He failed as the leader of his 600 men when they had gone away and they were trying to make some money, destroying another city. And he came back and Ziklag was burned with fire where he lived and all his family and all the families of all 600 of his men were taken away captive. He failed his men because he should have been home, but instead he was out on, uh, on exploits trying to get some money on the side, some fast money. He failed as leader of those 600 men that day. He failed as a parent in almost every one of his children's lives. You look at all of his sons and his daughters, and they're almost all a mess. He failed as king when his pride got to him and he wanted to number all of the country as if he was going to war. He just wanted to feel the zeal, feel the excitement of being, being head of the, of the, of the, of the uh, nation and saying, we're not going to go to war, but I just want to feel like it. And uh, Job, Joab couldn't stop him. Nobody could stop him. And God said, you were wrong. And it cost 70,000 lives because of David's pride. He failed the nation. 
He had an F on his report card. Even though his sins were many, he seemed to do the impossible. He seemed to always get right back, get back right with God, and God forgave him every one of them. God turned, God turned that F from failure to forgiven. Thank God. See, every one of us got that on our forehead, whether it's visible or not. But you need that on your heart. And it made, and that made it possible for David to press on. Now, the truth is, David experienced so many failures that he should have quit. He should have quit time after time. He says, this is not for me. I'm just a mess up. Sorry, guys. I'm not your leader. Uh, I shouldn't have married. I shouldn't have this. That's a quitter. And we got too many quitters. God never called David to ever quit anything, even though he failed at them. He didn't quit, and neither should you. How does David respond to his failures? I need you to go now to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. <clears throat> this is the chapter after David and Bathsheba's sin. We want to see how David responds to his failures. We're going to read 24 verses here. And um, start there in verse 1 to 10. I want you to see what it was like when David was found out. See, David, up until this point, has got rid of the husband, Uriah, had him killed. He's lied about it, acted like nothing ever happened, and that, the, uh, uh, his, uh, that his relationship with Bathsheba was, was uh, all on the up and up and everything. But chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And isn't it good that God will send a Christian into your life sometime just to look at you in the eye and go, you're wrong. <laughs> and she came unto him, and he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb. Now stop there for a second. What was David before he became king? Shepherd. You know, David wasn't a shepherd... Um, out of, out of duty, he loved being a shepherd. He risked his life to protect little baby ewe lambs. So here, Nathan's telling the story about a rich man who's got loads of flocks and a poor man who has one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And it, this little lamb, grew up together with this poor man and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. There came a traveler unto the rich man, the other guy, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and killed it and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He says he deserves to die. Verse 6, and he shall restore that lamb fourfold, four times as many lambs back, because he did this thing, because he had no pity on that poor man. Verse 7, and Nathan said one of the scariest things you can say to a Christian, you're caught. You're the man that I just described. Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel and delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee to the house of Israel, gave thee the whole house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had not been, if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things, given you more. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord, all five of them, to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. What does David now know? It's known. His secret is exposed. And has taken his wife to be thy wife, and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword that shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Now how would you react? 
Some people turn to drink when, when their life collapses around them. Some people turn to drugs. Some people, you know, in the ministry, they quit their calling. They move to another country or another city at least. David could have looked at Nathan and said, execute him. He was king. He could have done anything he wanted. Yet instead, what did he do? He accepted what he was. And he admitted it. Look in verse 13. Very next verse. I'm sorry, let's keep going. Verse 12 says, Thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. You're about to be humiliated, David. Verse 13, and David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the first step of repentance. Owning up to the fact, you're right. You know, the hardest thing to get people to do is to agree with God. Amen. Say, you're right. I have sinned against the Lord. Let's just stop there for a second. I wish this generation would accept it. You know, the, you go and you give the gospel to somebody, you know the hardest thing to get them to admit? They're a sinner. Oh, I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. Well, you don't know how much I've gone, given to the church. You don't know how many times I've been baptized. You don't realize how much I pray. I don't care. Even if you're saved in this morning, somebody asks, do you sin? You say, yeah, I'm a sinner, through and through. That's the reality. But getting people to admit that, no wonder the world's not, not getting the gospel in their, in their hearts is because in their head they're just going, I'm not that bad, I'm not that bad. You know, accepting you're a sinner would save a lot of failed marriages, relationships, and fix a lot of broken lives. You know what you got in a marriage problem? You got one person saying they're right, and the other person saying, no, the other person's wrong. And no, I'm right, you're wrong. Instead of both of them saying, you know, we're both wrong. Admitting you're a sinner will fix a lot of broken lives. Secondly, look what he did. He drew near to God. Look at verse 14. Howbeit, because this deed... Uh, look at verse 13. We'll finish up here. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord hath also put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. We'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 14. Howbeit, because, this, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Now Bathsheba's pregnant. When she gives birth, David hears the words, that baby's going to die for your sin. Verse 15, And Nathan departed unto his own house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah bare unto David, and it was very sick. Verse 16, And David therefore besought who? The doctors? I mean, it's fine to go to the doctor, but you better spend time crying out to God. It is just fine to, to, to look up. Do they need cow pole? Do they need nerfin? All that stuff may be important, but the most important thing you need to do is get on your face before God. Besought God for the child, and David fasted, and he went in and lay all night upon the earth. Verse 17, the elders of the house arose, and they went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not get up, neither did he eat bread with them. He drew near to God. Do you realize... Do you realize what God opens for this world? He has opened a refuge for sinners in Jesus Christ. Can you ponder that for a minute? God, if he was like us, you see, what was David's attitude towards that rich man? Kill him! Right? Then all of a sudden, he's the bad guy. I guess I should die. And God says, no, I've taken your punishment away. He put it on Christ, by the way, but we'll go there in a moment. And here David finds there's a refuge for a sinner like him. Failures in this life, people who are failures in this life, like a harlot, like sinners, like politicians, like drunkards, come on, that was a good joke, like addicts, broken people have a perfect refuge in Jesus, amen? That's why we, listen folks, that's why you come to church. You come to church to be reminded, God loves a sinner like me. We still sing Amazing Grace, amen? God has opened a refuge. And your refuge is not a church. Your refuge is not a counselor. It's the Son of God. Matthew 11 says, Jesus says, come unto my disciples. No, he doesn't say, come unto my mother. He says, come unto me. Oh, you that labor and are heavy laden, broken, and I will give you rest. So you and I need to shut out the world when we're failing. 
when we're at the end of ourselves, when nothing's working, we need to shut out the world and even shut up our own heart and just fall on our knees and talk to God in desperate prayer saying, God, I'm a failure. Amen. You know what the Lord will say? Now we can start. Because as long as you think you don't need to humble yourself before God is as long as you'll be away from God. Confess to everything you can think of. When was the last time you sat there and just started confessing sin? I mean confessing it. And you just start saying, you know, Lord, I'm a mess. I failed in my marriage. I failed in my parenting. I failed in these things. Now, man, you start the list. If you go on for too long, you'll want to die. But, you know, when you start confessing it, the Holy Spirit comes in there and shows his hand and starts lifting you up. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Amen. Draw near to God. No matter how sinful you may be, no matter how much of a mess you may be, a failure you may be, if you're saved, if you're born again, I'm going to tell you, you can draw near to God, and God can wash away all of that past in a heartbeat. Third, he stopped resisting grief and guilt. Verse 16. Up until this point, David hasn't wept, probably hasn't prayed, he hasn't wrote a psalm, he hasn't done anything spiritual other than go through the motions because he's got this guilt. He's got, he's got this sorrow and this grief for his sin that he resists. And that all changes in verse 16. David therefore besought God for the child, and David now fasted. I mean, if you're a king, you can eat anything you want for as long as you want, and he decides to put it all away. He's not fasting for his figure. And he went in, he lay all night upon the earth. He's not laying on his bed. He's not even at the side of his bed. He's flat down on the, on the floor, verse 17. The elders came in the house. They saw that. They freaked out. They went to him to try to get him up. He says, you're king. You can't be on the ground. Get up. But he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. Look down at verse 21. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast. And what's the next four words? You wept for the child. You know, allow God to soften your heart and to break it. If you're a failure... Let God to soften your heart. Go to Psalm 34. Hold your place here. Go to the middle of your Bible. Psalm 34 and verse 18. <clears throat> I know we just had Valentine's. I'm going to tell you the best kind of heart to give Jesus. It's a broken one. See, that doesn't sound very... No, no, no. Look at what the Bible says. Psalm 34. In verse 18, the Lord is nigh, is near, is right next to them that are of a broken heart in pieces. And he saveth such as be of a contrite, a very tiny spirit. No attitude about you. There's nothing about you that is, is proud of yourself. It's only brokenness. And I want to say this. Remember, David wrote that song. I wonder if he wrote it from experience. You know, Lord, I thought you were okay with me lying and murdering and coveting. And no, I know, I know it wasn't. And he brought a broken heart to God. So stop resisting grief and guilt that the Holy Spirit is trying to bring to your life. Because that will soften. I was, trying to, I was asking God, all right, God, how do you soften stubborn men's hearts, you know? God does when we allow God to break our heart because of our sin and our guilt and our shame. And we start going, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Then he accepted responsibility. Look there back in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 5. <clears throat> Remember, David's anger was greatly kindled against that rich man. And he said unto Nathan, As the Lord liveth, that man that hath done this thing shall surely... Ooh, verse 13 now. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, under his breath, he's saying, and I should die. You know what he's doing? He's accepting responsibility. He's taking responsibility for his own actions. And that's why Nathan said unto David, The Lord hath also put away thy sin, and thou shalt not die. I was on an airplane 
I think I told you this illustration. I gave a gospel tract to a woman. I didn't know that she was a uh, high up nun. She was a mother superior of some uh, cloister or something in Africa. I can't remember the name of the country she was in. She had been in that country for 35 years. Now she was retiring. She was coming home. I gave her a gospel leaflet, and, and uh, she read it. We were talking, and she was reading it. She asked me a few questions. Everything was all fine. And then on the last page, she just handed it back to me. She said, I enjoyed the entire leaflet until the last part. I said, what was that? The part where I have to agree that I deserve hell. I said, well, why would you have a problem with that? And she looked at me and got very dark, and the fangs came out. Seriously, she became furious. She said, after 35 years of the hell that I've just lived for God, if, if my life is not good enough to get me into heaven, then I want nothing to do with him. I said, Jesus only dies for sinners. If you're good enough to go to heaven on your own, and Jesus didn't die for you, and you're not going. And you got to own up to the fact, I deserve the wrath of God if you want to receive the gift of God. Does that make sense? I had no idea who this woman was. I didn't know how it was going to go. I'm just telling you, sometimes God puts a tract in your hand to talk to the right person, and that person whew, needed to come down off her high horse and admit, you know what, I'm a sinner, just like everybody else, and I need a Savior. She was expecting that God was going to pat her on the back and says, well done, you did a great job. You worked your way in. Come on in. And that's not how you get in, folks. He accepted. You know, he could have bathed Bathsheba, that stupid woman. How dare a woman bathe in her own... <laughs> uh, that architect of mine, that architect, he's the one that built my house and her house so close together. He could have blamed the window washer for cleaning the window that day. They didn't have windows back then. But anyway, cleaning the window that day so that he could see right into her house. Let me tell you, he didn't blame anybody. And we are so often so clean to blame, well, you did this and you did that to make me do wrong. And this is awesome. This is where it gets really good, folks. He sought to change the outcome. This is what a Christian can do. Instead of him saying, I guess the kid's going to die. I guess my family is going to go to pot. I guess my life is ruined. No. You know what he does? He says, I wonder if God will have mercy. Wow. David asked God to save the life of the child and to spare it. Look at verse 16. David therefore besought God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. What's he doing? He's waiting and begging God to intervene. You know what, David was not a fatalist. God did, when God says, yet 40 days and I'm going to destroy Nineveh. You know what God was hoping? To not have to destroy Nineveh. He just needed a preacher to go and preach repentance and get them to fall on their face and to cry out for mercy. And God will say, great, I didn't want to destroy it anyway. <laughs> but I was going to. If I had to, I would. And falling on the mercy of God and saying, God, I failed, and I ought to just lose everything. But you're a merciful God, and I'm going to come to your throne of mercy. I'm going to find grace to help in time of failure. You understand what I'm saying? Time of need and time of failure. And in that mercy that God has, you can change the outcome. Watch this. He believed that God had mercy and could change the ending of every bad story. Do you believe that? God can change the ending. He can't go back and fix so He can't fix stupid. Amen? But he can change the ending. Peter was a failure of a disciple. Amen? Yet, he went on and he allowed the grace of God to write the last chapters of his life. Peter should have walked away from being an apostle of Jesus Christ when he denied even knowing Jesus. He should have, and, and, and Jesus was taken away and was crucified. Peter went off and he wept in grief, in sorrow for failure. He probably should have walked away and never come back. And yet, at the resurrection, Jesus said, go tell Peter. Everything's fine. And Peter realized Jesus can write the ending, can rewrite the ending better than we could ever imagine. Job's wife wanted Job to die. Job, you're a failure. 
You couldn't protect our children. You couldn't protect our wealth. You couldn't even protect our health. God is against us. Let's just die. You know what Job said? Wait a minute. Wait a minute, woman. God is writing a book about me, and I want to see the last chapter. Amen. What are you doing with the mercy of God? You can go to, you know what you can do? You can go to the offended person in your life and humble yourself and try again to make things right. I failed with so-and-so. Well, go to him. Do that because that's what a Christian does. A Christian goes and humbles themselves and says, I'm sorry, can we start again? Amen. You can start over in your marriage every day if you have to. Amen. Some of you are asleep. Wake up. What are you doing with the mercy of God? You can phone up your creditor and you can ask for a payment plan and then you can stick to it. You can get yourself out of debt. Amen. Oh, I guess I'm doomed. No, you're not. You can get out of debt. You can spend some specific time with your children, no matter how old or young they are, and get real with them and pray with them and love them and listen to them as a flawed dad or a flawed mom. Your kids will love you if you'll fall on that mercy. You can pray and ask God for wisdom about what job to have. Instead of just taking the first one that comes up and keeps you working every weekend, why don't you say, Lord, where would you have me to work? Amen. Then you can find your purpose in life by serving others. Well, I can't be a pastor. I've done so much stuff that's disqualified me. You can serve. If you'll be a servant, God will lift you up and put you in places you never dreamed of. Don't you dare say, well, I've blown the ministry. You've blown nothing. God wants a humble heart that's broken. and He says, you know what? I'll use you. Greater than anything you could ever dream. Seek to change the outcome. What else did he do? He believed God's own words. Go down to verse, look in chapter 23, 1223. Let me go, let me give you the, the stores here. Verse, nine, uh, verse 18, it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken under our voice. How will then he vex himself if we tell him the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, and he washed, he anointed himself, and changed his apparel. Seven days he hadn't taken a bath, he hasn't eaten, he hadn't slept. He changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord, and what did he do? Worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. And this is freaking out his servants. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? You know, it's a lot of words for, What are you doing? <laughs> Verse 21, Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead, we thought you'd kill yourself. But thou didst, watch these words, rise and eat bread. And he said, I believe something. He said, I believe God. While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be, I love this word, gracious. I love the grace of God. Will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he shall not return to me. David believes God's own words. Look at chapter 23. You're in 2 Samuel. Go to chapter 23. The very last thing that David writes about his life and his family is sad. Chapter 23. Starting in verse 1. Now these be the last words of David, David the son of Jesse said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of God, of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, so he's talking about himself, he says, these are my titles. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and he did in inspiring the, the psalms, and his word was in my tongue. Boy, he had a great life. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, and he told me that he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. He... King 
shall be as the light of the morning. That's what he should be when the sun rises, like a, like a glorious morning. That's what his life is supposed to be like. When the sun rises, even a morning without clouds is the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after a rain. Verse 5, however, he says, although my house be not so with God, he says, my life has been blessed, but my home is a mess. Yet he, God, have made with me an everlasting covenant, a promise. He has ordered in all things, that his promise is ordered in all things and is, what's the next four-letter word? It is sure. It doesn't change. And for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow, at least not in his home. He believed God about salvation from the judgment of God. He says, God was very gracious to me. He was secure all throughout of that thing. His, his own soul was secure, even though everything else was falling apart. And God held him up and carried him through. God made a promise that he wouldn't break. Has God made any promises to you that he cannot break? But you know, that's amazing. To know the promises of God and know that when he makes a promise, I will fail, he remains faithful. God knew all about David when he made those promises to David. Did you know that? God looked down and said, oh, David, you have no idea how stupid you're going to be and how many times I'm going to have to pick you up, and yet I still make a promise to you. It's called salvation, folks. God was going to hold him up and carry him through no matter the sin. And that was David's salvation. And it wasn't because David was a good person, not because David did good works. But it's because God made a promise to him. You just trust me, I'll get you all the way home. And you know what? When he got up, he got up forgiven and a better man. Amen. There are times where you just need to hold on to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins. You know what sins come from? Failures. Faults. Faithlessness. Um... I have not been faithful, so I sin. If we confess our sins, He is what? Faithful. He makes up for all of my stupidity. He is faithful to forgive. What's the rest of it? I'm missing some word. He is faithful and He's just. He's righteous to forgive and to cleanse us from how many sins? And He's talking to Christians. He's talking to us. If we say that we have no sin, we lie and we deceive our own selves. He got up a better man. David was a better man. You wouldn't want to meet David in chapter 11. You wouldn't trust him with your wife. Chapter 12, after he gets up, he's a better man. Would you agree? He went off there and he married Bathsheba. He went back to being king because God allowed it. I wonder what God would allow you to do if you just humble yourself. You say, oh, I, my wife wouldn't take me back. My husband wouldn't want me. My kids would never talk to me. You know, you humble yourself for God. You spend your time getting right with God, and then you try to get right with them. God has control of every heart. And that was a miracle. I believe in miracles, amen? That's the one we need. Let me give you some encouraging truths about God's view of our failures. Number one, there's none righteous. No, not one. You believe that, don't you? Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there is none righteous. Next three words. No, not one. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So every good person you meet who's trying to do good, they also sin along the way. They just won't tell you about it. They might not even know it. Romans 3.23, who can quote that? Romans 3.23, come on, raise your hand. Somebody say it. For all, I mean, you're all in different sequence here. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us come short. Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone our own way. Thank God the Lord had laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. None of us are perfect. Is that good news? You say, how can that be good news? Because it puts us all at the same level. It doesn't have all these degrees. I remember giving the gospel to my employer when I worked for, for the telephone company. I sat down with him, and he was showing me all of the stuff that we need to do. And I says, can I show you something? 
because he'd been going on and on and on about plans. And I said, and I got out, he was showing all these charts and everything. I got me a piece of paper out, and I said, on this diagram, and I drew a, a little, looks like a sideways L. I said, where are you? Are you a good person or are you a bad person? He says, well, it depends on what day of the week. <laughs> he says, I kind of rotate up here about 75%. I kind of go up and down, up and down like this. I said, well, an honest man, you just, you're just wrong. And I showed him these verses. And I said, there's none good. You know where we all are? Down at zero. And you may try and do good, but God doesn't notice you. The only good God ever noticed was in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you try and hop off of that zero line, you'll never make it. You are stuck there until the day you get born again. He says, well, I would never believe that. I said, then you'll end up in hell. And then you'll believe it. But the good news is we're all down at that zero because that's where God saves. That's why we needed a Savior. We need someone who was perfect, someone who could save those of us who aren't perfect. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptations, worthy of everybody accepting, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save people who are perfect, right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he added this, Paul said this, of whom I am chief. You think he was proud of that? No, he's just being honest. You know what he calls himself in Romans 7? Wretched man that I am. Wow. Mark chapter 2, just for time, says, When the scribes and the Pharisees saw Jesus eat with the publicans and the sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole, they that are healthy, have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I am come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's an open door to the sinner. Romans 5, 6, For yet... For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, God commendeth, God freely gives to us His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. While I was yet a failure, Christ died. That's why we needed a Savior. Even the best of us will fail. Go to Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs chapter 26. Say, Pastor, do you ever sin? Uh, yeah. Don't ask my wife. She'll be here all day telling you all about it. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 16. I said 26. Go to 24. Proverbs 24, verse 16. For a just man falleth how many times? And here's the good part. And rises up again. You say, you know, man, I'm battling drink, Pastor. I'm battling this, this, this uh, addiction. I'm battling this, this temptation, and I keep failing. I keep falling. When is God going to kill me? Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't count on, on waiting for that moment. I just get up again. I just confess it, forsake it, walk away, try to get right with God, and then get back serving God. Because if you walk in the Spirit, if you walk... In, in following Jesus, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But if you keep worrying about the flesh and worrying about your failure, you will fall. But a just man will fall seven times and rises up again. But the wicked, and this is kind of, it's, it's implied, shall fall into mischief and never get up again. That's the implication. You know, a, a Christian can trust that even though you and I may sin against God, we, we sin against our family, we become entangled in sin. We can trust that we will not fall all the way back down to zero. The wrath of God that should be on my sin, even now that I'm a Christian, it was poured out on who? It was poured out on Jesus Christ. There's no more wrath left to pour out on you. And that's the security of the believer. Look at Psalm 94. Go back and find Psalm 94. Psalm 94 and verse 18. Psalm 94 and 18, you ought to memorize these verses. When I said, my, for, my foot slippeth, I'm slipping back, Lord. I'm struggling. Thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. So the Lord's mercies were not consumed. Great is His faithfulness. Go to Jude Last, second to the last book in your Bible, Jude, chapter 1, verse 24. There's only one chapter, but Jude, 
chapter 1, verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from, hallelujah, and to present you, I don't understand that. You see, I got all the memories of all of my failures, and I forget them, my wife will remember them. But when I stand before God, I will be faultless. I don't understand that. How is that possible? The blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Even the best of us will fail. But not all failures are bad. You know, when Israel came out of Egypt, God didn't feed them for a little while, and they got hungry, and God didn't let them have water for a while, and they got thirsty, and God said, what do you think? And they got pretty mad. We're going home. We're, not, we don't want to, we're going back to Egypt. The Lord said this. He said, I humbled you. Find out what was in your heart to see whether you would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but live by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. So God sometimes lets you go through a dry spell, goes through a failure, lets you fall flat on your face to teach you to depend upon God. You know, um, we need Him. Peter's walking on the water, isn't he? Coming out of the ship, Jesus out on the storm. When Peter comes out of that water, I can tell you this, this is what Peter's doing. Peter's looking at Jesus, this is great. Woo, the water's going up and down like a trampoline, man. And Jesus is going up here. Peter's going down. They're going up, and they're getting closer and closer. And then Peter starts to look around her, and he says, Guys, what do you think of this? Yeah, look at that storm. Look at that wave. And in a heartbeat, he sinks. And Jesus let him sink. Then Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus, I mean, with the longest arm. My mom had a long arm. She's a little woman, but she had very long arms she could grab. And in a stretch, he grabbed him, pulled up, and he says, why did you doubt? Why did you take your eyes off me? You see, the only reason why he was walking on that water was because Jesus was helping him. And we forget the only reason why we're sane today, the only reason why you're upright and you're not in hospital somewhere, the only reason why you're not dead in a grave is because Jesus is keeping us alive for a reason, and you need him for every breath. So when you have that failure in your life, it's to remind you, I need him. I wish I could say that failures are fatal. But some are. That's why there's divorce. That's why there are fewer and fewer soul winners and why there are fewer and fewer pastors and missionaries. This is an awful statistic, but in Europe and in America, including all denominations, 1,400 pastors quit the ministry every month. That's 1,400 people who, who do different, I don't know, the Church of Ireland, all kinds of things I know. But 1,400 people quit the ministry every month because they feel the failure and they quit. But if you're still breathing, there is hope, amen? The devil wants you and I so bad to fall, but he doesn't want you to know that when you fall, God is there to lift you up again. And again, and again, and again. I'll quote that verse again. We started with Micah 7, 8. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. That's a good thing, folks. Christians have the opportunity to do something impossible. What is it? To get back up and to press on even when we fail God. Because that's a reality. We fail Him all the time. And there are just too many, oh yeah, there are just too many Christians who quit getting back up. And they end up dark, depressed, defeated, and ruined. Their marriages failed, their children, relationships, their careers, their worship, their friendships, their finances, their purpose in life, all, if you just looked at them, you'd say, F, 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 F. Yet, according to the Bible, we are said to be more than conquerors. Amen? We're greater than conquerors. So we have this secret ability to get back up and keep doing, going. How? By remembering there's none righteous. Quit comparing yourself among yourselves. You know, the greatest truth about who we look at is one person, Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one we can look at 
and go and get encouraged by. Because if you look at somebody else, you say, he just got a 201 car. Look at that perfect family they have. Look at how that wife treats her husband so nicely. When we look at our lives, don't do that. Don't do that at all. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. There's none righteous, no, not one. That's why you and I needed a Savior. The gospel's got the answer, folks. Even the best of us will fall. One of the worst things is for somebody to come into this church and think we're all nearly perfect. Now, we shouldn't be like we used to be. But never give the impression, oh, I haven't sinned in the last 26 years. Don't ever give that impression. The most religious, the most devout, the most holy. If you look close enough, you'll see a lot of blemish. Wish I could say no fail, failures are fatal. But some are, especially folks. That's why there's a hell. Because some of you may fail to get saved this morning. You know what you have to do to go to hell? Neglect getting saved. Just put it off. Just say, ah, not today, Pastor. Ah, I'm not ready. Are you kidding me? You're a sinner on your way to hell. You are ready to get saved. <laughs> Now's the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Talk to me after the service. And the gospel says, if you're still breathing, I can't preach to a dead person. You know, when I do a funeral, the only people I'm talking to are those looking at me. That person's dead and gone. Head or heaven or hell, they're already gone. And if you die without Christ, there's no more hope after that. There's no, there's no purgatory. There's no limbo. There's no second chance. There's no backup plan. You need to get saved today.